this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. This is Linus Wilson, podcasting from the beautiful turquoise waters in the Caribbean Sea of Cayo Largo, Cuba. Me and Stevie, since we last spoke to you, got another 100 miles of easting to Cayo Largo, our final destination here in Cuba, before we make our big jump across the Caribbean Sea, hopefully in the coming week. We've had a really good time so far. We enjoyed Nuevo Gerona, where we gave you the podcast last week, although I don't think we talked about it. You know, I think Nuevo Gerona is the place that people want to go because they want to see the real Cuba. They want to see the Cuba that is kind of stuck in time. And, and Nuevo Gerona, in many cases, is stuck in time. I'd say in terms of the internet, they're in the 90s. But in terms of other things, they're still in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe 1850s. It's, a, it's an interesting place. It's a real city, uh, unlike this uh, beautiful resort we have here in Cayo Largo in Nueva Rona. The river doesn't smell so hot. Stevie met a, a bunch of wonderful people. He hiked up uh, one of their big hills in uh, there and saw their prison where Fidel Castro was uh, once housed by the Batista regime. So he had a fun time in Nueva Verona and we have been enjoying the beach and the tavernas here in Cayo Largo, which is a resort more for uh, international tourists, but it is also a great jumping off point for the Caribbean Sea, except for one small thing, is it does have potable water, and so we had a little bit of a water issue we were able to resolve by buying much more bottled water than I wanted to at a very reasonable price, and that solved our water issue for our Caribbean Sea crossing to Providencia, Colombia. So... You know, I think Cuba is kind of a place of a lot of contrast. So the river smells like uh, raw sewage, but they have a 24-hour pharmacy in Nueva Gerona. They have horse and buggies, which are not for tourists. Me and Stevie really were the only tourists we saw in Nueva Gerona. It was a working city, uh, but the locals would use horse and buggies to to cart heavy loads at very reasonable prices more reasonable than you could for instance get a cab there was tons of public transit if you wanted to use the internet it was the same as in most of cuba that you have to get a wi-fi card and then go to one of their designated hotspots. and so here in Cayo Largo, we're able to bring it to you because they have hotspots and Wi-Fi cards, and the same thing is true in uh, Nueva Gerona, which allowed us to bring Tyler Brandt's interview to you last week. This week, we have Cheryl Barr, 
the author of a recent cruising guide to Cuba, which we have relied on heavily on our trip. Been a lifesaver. I, in particular, I think about uh, when we went through the the uh, Passa del Quintasol, uh, where it correctly identified the buoys, where my Navionics chart app on my iPhone did not, and where our chart plotter did not. It's been very helpful. Obviously, if you're cruising the south coast, it's really essential reading uh, for any boater. We're just so pleased to have Cheryl Barr on and I was so lucky to get the opportunity to talk to her. She also gave me great advice in this interview uh, in the bonus interview to buy uh, buy a piece of uh, 2x6 plywood and attach that to some fenders so we didn't tear up our boat in Nueva Girona when we tied up to a bulkhead reserved for huge ferry boats which was the only way we could have visited that wonderful city. I apologize for the background noise here. Uh, That's part of uh, recording a podcast on a boat, and you can hear the halyards in the background, so I hope it's uh, ambiance for you and not an annoyance, because it's the kind of ambiance that you will have if you are actually out there cruising. So we'll let uh, some of the live music from... Playa Serena in Cayo Largo, Cuba, lead us in and out of the interview with Cheryl Barr. This episode is sponsored by Jennifer Clark's Gulfstream. Satellite oceanographer Jennifer Clark and professional meteorologist Dane Clark have over 35 years of experience helping sailors on blue water voyages. Their current charts, crossing waypoints, and personalized weather advice help sailors take advantage of favorable currents and minimize the impact of unfavorable ones. A link to their website, their email address, and their phone number are in the show notes. You wrote this cruising guide to Cuba, and I think on one of the things it's it talks about your father's boat and uh, your experience uh, sailing it. Could you tell us a little bit about the boat that you've sailed to Cuba in? Yeah, so the boat I sailed to Cuba in is called Road to the Isles. That's my parents' boat, and it's a steel uh, 62-foot-on-deck Hirschhoff schooner, which as a family we built, excuse me, built ourselves. The book that I write, my dad helps me with that. He does um, all the illustrator diagrams in the book. What's the name of your cruising guide? The the Cuba Guide, because I have other guides, but the Cuba one is called Cruising Guide to Cuba. It's volume one, and I'm presently working on volume two. I also write cruising guides for the Maritimes. One is the Down East Circle Route. And the other is just called the Canadian Maritimes. Do you sail Road to the Isles back to the Maritimes every year? Yeah, we used to do that. It's uh, quite a long haul. But um, once we got it up here, we found there were too many other things going on. We didn't use it too much. 
and then we just have to turn around and take it back down. So we keep it down. Um, my parents have a place in Florida where they keep it. And now wintering, winter sales, they go to Cuba. And you just got back from Cuba, is it right? That's right, yeah. I got back about two weeks ago. It's April right now. How many times have uh, you and your father visited Cuba? Um, yeah, I would say more than 20. Now, in the case of my dad, he's been there even more times than I have. Um, because every now and then, you know, I have to get a job and I have to uh, earn a bit of money. So I, I skipped those winters. But I myself have probably been about 16 times. He's, probably, he's been over 20. Uh, that's quite a lot. It is. And that's sailing around the island as well as a lot of overland travel as well. So I'm not sure that there's anywhere now in Cuba that we, between us, have not been. Awesome. When did you guys start visiting Cuba? Um, uh, 90, we launched the boat in 96, and our maiden voyage was to Cuba. So we, we made a 10-day spring cruise that year, and then been going nearly every year since. Wow, that's great. And when do you think Volume 2 of the Cruising Guide to Cuba will come out? I'm working on that, and my aim, I have a goal, which is for the end of this year. So uh, what I'm hoping is it'll be available for, call it the next cruising season. I mean, most people tend to go in the winter time, so I'm aiming for that, um, that cruise. Okay, so winter 2016. Yes, 2016-17. Okay, well, that, that sounds great. And what parts of Cuba does Volume 1 cover? Volume 1 covers um, from Baradero, which is on that northwest coast, west about, so you're passing around Cabo San Antonio, the westernmost tip, and it goes as far as Trinidad, which is just a little bit past Cienfuegos. The uh, guide I'm presently working on goes from Trinidad east, about so around that um, eastern tip Cabo Maisie back to Veradero uh, there was a reason I broke it up this way originally I was planning on doing the two volumes north coast and south coast but with all the cruising that we've done knowing where the majority of boaters are coming from namely Florida coming down for the winter the most logical way to break it up was east west most people will Come across from Florida into Veradero or Havana and probably do a little cruise down that northwest coast. If they've got a bit more time, they'll do a little whip around the corner and then back again and home. So it made sense to break it up that way. The guide I'm working on now will be great for the people coming from Caribbean, from Down Island. Then they'll either go the north coast or south coast also, those coming from the Bahamas, and there's a few of those, they'll cross to Puerto Vita on the northeast coast and then run up along to Havana or possibly even duck around to the south coast if they're early in the season. On episode four, we had Addison Chan on, and uh, he said he visited first from Puerto Vita. And I noted that, you know, Addison, he's provided many of the pictures in volume one. So and he says you guys are good friends and actually when I interviewed him he said he was 
talking to your dad right before the interview. He probably was, yeah. (laughs) So so that was the same time you were in in Cuba, too. Well, my dad and I were on two different trips. My dad was helping to pilot a Portland, Maine schooner that's down in Cuba. I was on another American boat helping to pilot that and also do activity coordination. So we actually didn't meet up on the boats that we were on, but at the end of each of our little junk it down there we we met up in Veradero and flew home from there and I know the Harvey Gamage that's the boat my dad was on it was in Marina Hemingway at the same time that Addison was there on his boat Three Penny Opera so I think they were chit-chatting every day I I owned you a cruising guide I bought it and I totally agree that most boaters especially those that are coming from the U.S. are not going to probably go east of Veradero and uh, the, you know most of them are probably going to be centered on the Veradero Hemingway so I think it's you know d- definitely a very relevant read. In terms of my plans it's really the only recent cruising guide that's going to cover the places that I plan to visit because I plan to not visit Hemingway but actually sail straight for Cabo San Antonio and then round Cabo San Antonio to Cayo Largo. Okay. Yeah, that's a really nice area. And are you you're on the fourteen day? Table? No, I'm not. I I have a year permit, which is running out of the year. Okay. It'll run out sometime in August. You know, I think well, one of the things that I was thinking about for my trip was there's a let's say was it Maria Lagorda? Yeah. In kind of the the southwest in the Bahia de Corrientes. I think you mentioned in the guide that it's very deep there. And when I interviewed Addison, and this is a part of the interview I don't think I've yet released, he said that the south coast of Cuba has a very high, high cliff, that it's not, it's not really beach or anything on a lot of that, that stretch there. And uh, I guess if you just look at the charts in uh, Bahia de Corrientes, uh, it's probably, it's very deep, so very hard to anchor there. Uh, But they do have moorings at Maria La Gorda. Yeah, there's four moorings there. There's a shelf, so you're actually going to be coming in toward the little diving resort that's there, and you'll anchor on the shelf. It's it's not a wide shelf, and this is part of the reason you only want to go in there in prevailing easterly winds. Anything else, southerly, you know, southwest, west, it's a lee shore, uh, you're clo- you'd be close to shore, so you only want to go in there as long as you've got prevailing easterly winds. And do you think that, that goes for the moorings too? How safe do you think the moorings are there? The last time we were in there and looked at those moorings, they were good moorings. They're a steel cable, so they're, they're good moorings. Yeah, if you can take one of those. Often the dive boats that operate out of Maria LaGorda, they're on those moorings because the dock there, it's not a very good dock. It's in shallow water. It's just quick, easy access for the divers to get on the boat. So you, whether you'll be able to get one of those moorings, it's hard to say. Oh, I see. So there's a lot of pressure for the moorings, or even if they're empty, may they, maybe they would say you couldn't use one? Yeah, if they're empty, you could try taking one. 
It's just that I think they were put in there for the diving boats that operate out of the dive resort. Even though it's a shelf, it's there's coral on the shelf, so you know they're anchoring up all the time, or they'd have to. That's why they put the moorings in. So if you're anchoring, I suggest looking for a sandy patch. Perhaps uh, the area we tend to look in is just to the south of the um, resort area. There's a few sandy patches down there. And there is a beach. Where Addison's talking about the cliffs, that's on the open water side. Inside the bay, there's, um, there is beach there. Okay. All right. Uh, by Maria Lagorda, it's a beach, but yeah. on the kind of western side, it's cliffs. Um, cliffy, but there are beaches around, all around that bay. Okay. But, but with Maria Lagorda, and this is the case in many places throughout Cuba, where there's a Garda Frontera post, which there is one at Maria Lagorda, that's where you have to anchor. So you can't just say, oh, I think I'll go over to this part of the bay. Generally, they don't like that. You need to anchor where the Garda post is. But Maria Lagorda is, you can get off the boat at Maria Lagorda if you wanted to. Yes, you can uh, take the dinghy ashore to either the dock there or the beach. You'll have to bring your paperwork, check in with the Garda Frontera, and, and then you have access to the beach and the little resort that's there. There's not much there. You can get a drink. Maybe you can get something to eat, a little restaurant there, but that's it. Nobody really lives there other than the workers who run the resort. Uh, do, you, do you think with the moorings there's a, there's a risk that you're going to be on the lee shore with the moorings? Do they swing that much? No, I think you'd be okay. But I would say, because everything with Cuba, from the minute it's completed in construction, there's zero maintenance. <laughs> right. Let get on one of the moorings. I would take a little dive down and check it yourself, and you know, see what you think. Yeah, that is definitely my policy with all moorings. I think we were in near Little Farmers, and there's some moorings in the Bahamas, Little Farmers Key, and I think one of them was like a really small anchor that was just buried in. <laughs> you know, or some other ridiculously small things that could not hold a cruising boat. Yeah, well, these ones that with really a one-to-one scope. Cape that's wrapped around the coral. It's you know really well wrapped around there, so it's it's not going to budge. But you still probably you want to look at it. There's zero maintenance in Cuba, which you'll soon find out. Okay. <laughs> I think another thing that Addison mentioned was that the the south coast that he didn't he was kind of skeptical that you really w- would have any stopovers even at Nueva Gerona because there's no f- marina for boaters in Nueva Gerona although i think you devote a good bit of time in the, the guide to that place in the isla de juventud or the isle of youth no i would i would go to Nueva Gerona Okay. Uh, we've gone in there. It isn't a marina, so that's true. But there are ferries that operate in and out of the Rio Las Casas there. These ferries go to the mainland, Badabano, 
and one of the ferries goes to Cayo Largo. It's a workers' ferry, so as a passenger, a tourist, you can't go on it. So there's dock space there. It's a, a cement bulkhead, and just there's um, space to the south of the ferry boats along the wall, and you could, there's probably, say, three average-sized cruising boats can tie up there or a bit of rafting. The time of the year that you're going, I don't know, it's hard to say, but I don't imagine there'd be anybody else in there. If there are, as I said, they, they'll let boats raft up. The only thing in recent years, as I was saying, before, in the first 10 years that we started going there to Cuba, you could go in anywhere you wanted, stay as long as you wanted. After Raul took over in 2008, that's when he started shutting things down. So the case with Nueva Jarona, uh, the last time we were there, we went in and there was no problem to stay for a couple of days. Other people will go in and they'll say, no, you can only stay one day. Some people have stayed longer. It kind of depends on the Garda Frontera. So it's another spot where you'll need your paperwork. They'll come down to the boat, check you in, and they'll tell you how long you can or can't stay. Um, it's a nice little town, and in fact, I think it's one of our favorites. I think it was one of Addison's favorites as well, so it's definitely worth trying to get in there. The only thing, and I don't mention this in my book because I try not to dwell on the negative, the Rio Las Casas, I think all the town sewerage flows in there. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's pretty stinky. Don't run your water maker. No, you know, you definitely don't want to be doing that in there. Okay. All right. So it doesn't smell so nice. Well, all right. But it's an interesting town anyways. And yeah, probably going in. And also, it's the only town kind of in that whole area that you're talking about. So at least you can get some produce there. You know, you have access to some things. What's your draft? Four feet. Oh, yeah. You can go anywhere. Is the river is the bar entrance difficult? No, no, because it's a very active port with all these ferries. It's well maintained. It's dredged. It's well um, uh, buoyed, so there's no problem at all. I think uh, you know, kind of earlier in my research, I was thinking about places like Cortez. The, yeah, um, but I I think that that may be too risky. I think even with four foot draft, you'd have trouble getting in. Yeah, and you certainly can't go ashore there, so. Well, as I said, with all of these places, a lot of it depends on the guy who's in charge of the um, station that day. Some of them are pretty friendly and don't care. Some of them won't let you ashore at all. Some of them might give you an hour or two. It, it's it's totally hit and miss. You don't know what you're going to get till you get there. You're pretty negative on the Cayos Indios. When I interviewed Addison, he was pretty negative on them. God, their authors have been negative on visiting there. Would you just say skip them? Or? Yeah, I'd say skip them. Um, I mean, if you need an anchorage. They're, they're not much more than a scrubby mud flat. Now, the Cayo San Felipe, which are just west of there, they're a little more interesting there proper, you know, mangrove keys, beaches on the south side, in, in the prevailing, winds should be prevailing southeast when you're there, so anchoring on the north side of these islands should have good shelter, um, 
the main one, the, the one at the far west end, there's a little, I, I refer to them as a ranger's hut. There's a little hut there, and there's about three Cuban guys living there, and their job is to monitor the beaches and turtles and the comings and goings and the iguana. So those guys are usually pretty friendly and like to have visitors. So the Cayo San Felipe, yes, but the Cayo Los Indios, there's really little point in going there. They're just kind of mud flat islands. All right, so if you need an overnight, maybe you want to just pass them at night. <laughs> and then, then enter towards the island of youth at Ensenada de Siguanea. How do you pronounce that? Yeah, Siguanea. There is a little marina tucked in there. Now with four feet, I think you can probably get in there. I mean, unless it's shoaled significantly in the last little while, but four feet, you can probably get in. Again, nothing much there. It's a guard. There's a guard post, and that's where the dive boats are running that go to um, at the very southwestern tip of um, Isla Juventud, that's Punta Francis. It's a dive area. So those dive boats are running to there. That's another good spot you might want to look at. But Siguanea, you should be able to get in. If not, you can anchor just outside. And then from there, you know, go north around the island, and that'll allow you to stop at Nueva Girona. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, Siguanea seems pretty well marked. And then you, you're saying that maybe, oh, there's also a, uh, what is it, Hotel Colony? Is that is yeah, that also a, called Siguanea? In some respects, it's kind of like Maria Lagorda. It's just a dive resort. So there's a little hotel, I I think it's maybe a couple of kilometers from the marina basin. Yeah. Um, so you can, you know, there'd be a bar and a restaurant there. But again, nobody really lives in that area. It just the the workers, I think they're bust in and out. So it's kind of a remote spot. So is that a dock? Is it a wooden it, dock? It's, or a, is... it's a dredged out boat basin that's got cement bulkheading all around. Okay. All right, so how do you keep your boat from cracking up on cement bulkheading <laughs> okay. if you don't have a steel if, boat? I've read all of my books. <laughs> uh, in there I say what you should have are good fendering and um, what's called a fender board. So you just need to go to uh, probably Home Depot uh-huh. and get a, I don't know what size for your boat, but um, probably a 2 by 6 uh-huh. And um, drill a couple of holes in either end, some rope, and then you put that over top. So you put your fenders over. Three, so three, you got three fenders down. The board goes over top on the outside okay. of the end. So you're actually laying on the board. The board will take the chafing. All right, let's see. I'm trying to visualize. How do you attach the board to the fenders? Well, they're not attached to the fenders. You put your fenders over as you normally do. Okay. Then you take the board and you've got a line, drill a hole in the ends of the boards. Uh-huh. Have a line on each end and then you put that, once the fenders are in place, put the board so it's laying over top of the fender. So the board is laying on the fenders that's laying on the side of your boat. And then just make that off to your, I don't know, lifeline or whatever you make your stuff off to. Cool. All right. Good advice. Something to do. That's a 
good tip before I leave. Sorry, I missed that section. It's 31 feet. Yes, one should be out. I think Addison was pretty negative when I talked to him about Kyle Largo. He did not did not like it. Although I've seen pictures of it, it seems like probably one of the best marinas I'll visit in terms of kind of floating docks and yeah. in no, terms I of just there. I I'd like it. As far as, yes, it's probably one of the more modern ones in marinas in Cuba. It's floating docks. The reason I like it, I mean, it's not a Cuban experience in that sense. The only Cubans who are there are, again, the workers who come in by ferry. But it's a good, like, break from mangroves or sitting at anchor. We usually dock while we're there. Normally, we are um, at anchor all the time. So we always enjoy, you know, a little bit of dock side time. Um, the beach there, Playa Serena, is probably one of the most beautiful beaches in Cuba. There is a little beach bar uh, at the marina. Uh, the little turtle corral farm is right there. So it, it's good for, a, you know, a day or two. There's a, not that I like to promote this, but there's a dolphinarium there. The Cubans are kind of big on this. And it's actually kind of neat to see the, the two dolphins that are there. Um, at first I thought, oh, geez, this is terrible. But I can see that with the height that the dolphins can jump, they could easily escape if they wanted to, but obviously they're well-fed and you're uh, <laughs> their trainers. And to go swimming with the dolphins, I don't know if you're taking your little girl, but I think she might enjoy that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It sounded a lot like our visit to Marathon. That we You, you see the dolphins, you also see the, the turtle farm, <laughs> all those things I think they have in Marathon. Sophie did do the... The dolphin thing in when we were in Marathon, Florida last year. I don't believe my daughter's going to be there this time oh. around, unfortunately. But yes, yeah, she would like when it. When I was there um, last month, we had a little girl who's ten with us, and she had a good time. Awesome. Okay, so maybe you could give kind of an overview in terms of your your advice for boaters thinking about visiting Cuba, what what kind of things would you have them think about beyond, you know, getting a good cruising guide like yours? Um, yeah, well, I guess um, you, want, you do want to go prepared. I listen to Addison's um, comments as well. I would say stock up with everything. I mean, you do anyway. That way, if you're at anchor, you have stuff. It's true that more and more you can get more items in Cuba, the government down there need the all the Cubans who are receiving remittance money, they need an outlet to spend it. So the Cubans are bringing in more goods for people to spend their money on so they can get their hands on that money. But it's still good to go well-stocked, well-prepared, particularly with anything to do with your boating mechanical parts. So you want to make sure you've got all your filters, your oil for changing your oil, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, if you miss the odd thing food-wise in the pantry, you're probably going to be okay without it. But anything, um, if you think you want to do a little bit of sanding and varnishing, then you need to bring everything like that with you. They, you can't even get sandpaper in Cuba. So going prepared is good. I guess the other thing 
is having good bug screens in place. <laughs> I did notice, as I said, I was just there last month, uh, the mosquitoes were not nearly as bad as what I've experienced in the past, so that was a good thing. I did notice that at Maria Marina Cayo Largo, they were fogging for mosquitoes, and I noticed they're doing that in quite a lot of places throughout Cuba. I think they're also concerned about that Zika virus. So the spraying is a good thing, but if you're out in the mangrove keys, you know, there's still going to be some mosquitoes. So it's good to be prepared with bug screens as far as what you need to pilot your boat around with. Um, I definitely recommend having my guide. Um, as far as um, other guides, the a lot of people are downloading the free um, Frank Virgentino guide, and I think that one's very good for background history and information on Cuba. As far as the navigation and piloting your boat that way, you're, you're limited to where he went on his cruise. He doesn't cover everywhere, just the spots that he went to. Nigel Calder's guide, although it is an older guide, it is still quite relevant as far as the anchorages go. And I haven't yet had a look at the other guide, Waterway Guide has put out. Uh, for you, that's not covering that area anyway. As far as charts go, I think a lot of people are using, I believe, the Navionics charts. But it doesn't matter whether you're using paper or electronic or which brands. They're pretty well all the same. They're all based on the um, Cuban-Russian charts from the 1970s. Um, which, and this was part of the reason I decided to do guide. We found that there were quite a lot of kind of errors in that, or maybe errors by omission. So, a lot of the chart insets, chart diagrams in my guide, we've actually done the soundings for those areas ourselves. So, if you see any discrepancy with the charts, I would tend to go with the soundings in my book because we've actually done the soundings on those. And I know that a lot of the newer charts, like the NV charts, they haven't made any changes to the original 1970 charts either. So, yeah. Okay, so some have advocated that the NV charts are the, the better way to go than Navionics or, or Garmin charts, but you don't agree. Um, no, I'm just saying all of them are based on the exact same chart. So a lot of the difference is um, the packaging and the quality, really. Okay, so um, you know, I I ended up buying the NV charts. I get the Navionics, but maybe I probably didn't need to get the Navion or the NV charts, although it's nice to have some paper charts. Oh, it, I, I believe it's a very good idea to have that paper backup. Um, the Cubans have just started reprinting their chart kits. They're, they had a chart kit that was, there were seven kits. Well, they've, I think they're, in a way, they're now copying um, NV, so they've got their four kits. I've had a look at those. They're selling each kit for $250, and they're totally not worth it at all. Um, there's not, the, the information basically the same as the NV, because as I said, it's all the same stuff. 
And then the only thing they've gone and done is a few pages laminated in the back of each kit are um, Nigel Calder's chart diagrams. <laughs> so you might as well, if money's of a you know issue, get the NV and buy a Calder guide, and you've saved yourself a lot of money. The rest of that interview is available only to supporters on Patreon.com. And if you're thinking of traveling to Cuba, Cheryl Barr has been giving seminars over the last year, some of them that cost more than $100 per person. It is totally worth the dollar pledge to get the rest of the interview because she has some great advice and she's a great expert on cruising Cuba and she's done it for decades. Check out my books, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time and Slow Boat to the Bahamas on Amazon.com. You can get the audio version of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time for free if you make as little as a dollar pledge on Patreon.com. Other ways you can support the podcast is just tell your friends about the podcast and have them subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher. In addition, writing a review would be greatly appreciated. Uh, we love to hear from you. And uh, if you're interested in our travels, you should check out the Slow Boat to the Bahamas page on Facebook or there's a link to that in our show notes, which is on the blog se section of slowboatsailing.com. The folks that like Slow Boat to the Bahamas on Facebook or follow at Slow Boat Sailing on Twitter are able to get uh, position updates and updates from us while we're on passage. So they enjoyed that when we were doing our uh, multi-day crossings in the Gulf of Mexico and when we didn't have internet access, when we were outside of these few ports such as Nuevo Gerona and Cayo Largo, Cuba. And so if you want to keep track of where the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast is as we go into blue water like us on Facebook which is Facebook slash Slow Boat Sailing Twitter at Slow Boat Sailing and uh, you'll get to hear about that and also see pictures from our trip it's my hope that I'll be able to bring you the podcast next Wednesday but I'm not 100% sure of that it's going to depend on how fast we sail to Providencia if we sail to Providencia and uh, so it may be delayed next week I cannot guarantee it but I'm hopeful that maybe we can get it to you on time so next week in episode 18 we will bring you Jeffrey Wedig of the escapepods.com shooting the breeze sailing podcast he's a great guy we talked to him in his episode 48 and so if you're joining us from that or if you're joining us from the recent talk i had with 
Teddy J on the Sail Loot Podcast. Welcome aboard. Hope to have you for many more adventures. So in episode 18, I think you'll learn a lot new about Jeffrey Wedding that you did not know, and I'm excited to bring that to you. He's an interesting guy, in addition to being one of the nicest guys you'll ever talk to. He sails a trailerable boat in the Chesapeake region. I believe he lives in Pennsylvania. He likes to talk to people in kind of the Annapolis, Chesapeake Bay area, but he talks to a lot of people all over the world, too, in his podcast. Until next week, go and have some fun on the water. This is Linus Wilson. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.